good morning. What a joy to be here with you. I had a chance to come to your amazing country. I live in Southern California. 2019, uh, my wife was here, my parents were here, my kids were here. And this invitation came back. I thought, you know what? I loved having my family, but I'm just going to bring my wife. We went to Queenstown for three days, went to the Bay of Islands. And then on the way back, we saw this sports team. I'm not sure if you are familiar with them. They're kind of a big deal in the U.S., but in the Auckland airport, we ran into these guys called the All Blacks or something like that. (laughs) Seriously, I actually recognized them because we were watching the epic game last week with the comeback against Australia. And uh, I recognized, I'm like, wait a minute, I know who these guys are. And let's just say I'm average sized. These guys are huge. Holy cow, reminded me uh, how small I guess I am in comparison. Well, this morning, got a big question for you related to a topic that I'm guessing is on your heart. The question is related to How do we pass on our faith to the next generation coming up behind us? I've heard some of the stats while I'm here about your country, and in many ways, very similar to the U.S. in terms of less and less people at least defining themselves as Christians and followers of Jesus. And then as parents and as adults and grandparents, that makes us concern on some level for the generation coming behind us especially this little rectangular thing in our pockets called smartphones, we now have a generation with more intellectual, emotional, spiritual, uh, moral challenges just one click away. How do we pass on the faith to them that was delivered to us? Well, that's the topic we're going to look at this morning, but I'm curious as we dive in, If you were going to write a mission statement of your responsibility to the next generation, what would it say? So I teach at a a private university in Southern California called Biola University, and I still teach a high school class part-time, three mornings a week at a a Christian high school, a Bible class. And I ask my students a lot of questions, just trying to gauge sometimes how young people are thinking. One of the most common questions I've asked them over the years is this, more than anything else, What do your parents want for you? Great Christian school. The most common response is my parents just want me to be happy or successful. Same exact answer here as in the States. I have three kids, love them to death. I want my kids to be happy and I want my kids to be successful. But I would much rather have them be miserable failures in the eyes of the world and following Jesus than the reverse. What does it look like to raise up kids? Well, there's a verse in Psalms 127.4 that says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. The moment I walked in this building, my wife was here early in the first service, and we both looked in and were like, wow, what a, what a beautiful, quaint sanctuary this is. But this is not your greatest resource. Great building. I'm sure you have vans. I'm sure you have physical resources as a church. None of that is your most important resource. Your most important resource is the next generation, who by God's grace will be living and following Jesus when you and I are gone. 
The question is, how do we pass on faith to them? Well, we're going to explore that by looking at one of the most important passages, arguably, in the entire Old Testament in the book of Deuteronomy. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of Deuteronomy with me. If you can't find it, just remember Matthew, Mark, Luke, Deuteronomy. So makes me nervous when people don't laugh at that joke. Book of Deuteronomy, we're in chapter 6. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it, but if you're turning there, the context is Moses has been shepherding the people of Israel for 40 years. And they're about to go settle in the land, but Moses can't go with them. So the whole book of Deuteronomy is kind of a final speech to them from a life of wisdom and serving God, how they can be successful in the land. But what's interesting is how radical things are going to change for them. Because the generation moving in has spent their entire lives living in tents, traveling through the desert, following a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And all of a sudden, they're going to settle into this land that was built on very different principles. So how do they follow God in changing time, so to speak, which kind of sounds familiar to today, doesn't it? And in Deuteronomy 6, Moses begins with this passage in verse 6-2 before he gets to this passage called the Shema. It says this. It says, again, this is Deuteronomy 6-2. It says that you, the people of Israel, may fear the Lord your God and your, you and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and commandments. Now, what's interesting is God's given them this command. He goes, this isn't just for you. This isn't just for your kids. This isn't just for your kids' kids. This is for all the generations that will come after. I think sometimes we're tempted to think about our life that God has given us X number of years and I'm faithful and I move on. We don't realize that our faithfulness or lack thereof can echo for generation after generation after generation. Some of you, I was at a conference with Thinking Matter speaking this weekend, might recognize the last name McDowell. My father Josh McDowell has been with a ministry called Crew. He's turning 84 this next week. He's been speaking and writing, just having a remarkable ministry. But a lot of people don't know that he grew up in a profoundly troubled family. His father in a small town in Michigan was the town drunk. His older sister took her life. And my dad was severely abused by someone who lived on their farm in a way I won't describe because I see some kids with us, but you can imagine exactly what that means. We were sitting around as a family a few years ago, and my younger sister says to my mom, hey, share funny stories growing up in Boston. And then she turns to my dad and goes, hey, dad, share a good memory, a good story you have when you were a kid. Awkward silence. I'll never forget it. My dad looks at us. He goes, kids, I don't have one. And I just wept for my dad. By all statistical categories, my dad should be dead or in prison or just having a wrecked life. But God got a hold of his life and transformed him and has just used him in powerful, powerful ways. But what's amazing, he's almost 84 years old. If you ask my dad, dad, what are you most proud of? He won't say best-selling books. He won't say this or that. He'll say, you know, my four kids follow the Lord, and my 11 grandkids follow the Lord. There's something about somebody at that stage in their life giving you and I wisdom about what matters. That's what Moses is talking about. 
He's saying live a life of faithfulness because it will echo for generations afterwards. And then there's four, we really jump in and you have this passage called the Shema. Now this passage, you might be thinking, how can you say this is so important? Well, when Jesus asked what's the greatest commandment, he actually cites the Shema. If you had a chance to go to Israel, I had a chance a few years ago, we got in a bus in Tel Aviv. We landed, got on the bus, and I'll never forget, our guide said two words. He said, welcome home. And I thought, there's nowhere else on the planet except maybe Scotland, because I'm a McDowell, and that's my roots, where that would ring true. Well, if you have a chance to go to Israel, one of the things Orthodox Jews will do is repeat this passage every day, twice a day. That's how important this passage is. So it starts in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So imagine Moses standing before, you know, hundreds of thousands of the Hebrew people giving this speech. He goes, Israel, listen up. The Lord our God is one. Right away, I think there's a principle we learn. It's this. To make God the Lord of our home. If you care about the next generation, the first question to ask is who or what is Lord of my life and who or what is Lord of my home? Because the question is not if something is Lord of your home. The question is what is Lord of your home? A number of years ago, I had a public debate with a high school teacher who was a PhD in my town at a local junior college on the question of God and morality, God versus evolution. And if it interests you, it's online. You could, you could watch it, but it was like 14 years ago. And I remember I got an email from a girl before, and she said, hey, this debate's coming up. Can I interview you for the local newspaper? I said, sure, you can come over to my classroom. I was teaching high school full time. I said, come on over. And before she came over, I got another email, and I'm reading it thinking, why did she send me this? And then I realized halfway through it, she didn't mean to send it to me. You ever sent the wrong person a text? I was trying to send my friend a note. We're on the same flight. I didn't realize that. I said, hey, punk, turn around. I'm right behind you. And I sent it to my mom. (laughs) Well, she sent me the wrong note, and she came over to the classroom. The interview was done. I said, hey, I'm not a counselor. I realize you probably didn't mean to send to me, but you're dealing with some heavy stuff. Do you want to talk about it? She goes, sure. Depression, anger, loneliness. In fact, she goes, you know what? Last Sunday, I was in church with my parents, and what they don't realize is I don't even believe in their God anymore. As I asked her questions, you know what the heart of it was? She said, I just can't believe in a personal loving God when my father has been so distant. Do you see what Moses is saying? He's saying, not your job, not a hobby, not a human relationship. Make God number one, because when we prioritize God, then our priorities begin to fall in place. And if you want to know what's really God of your life and your home, there's two places to check. That is your calendar and your checkbook. If you don't know what a checkbook is, ask somebody over 30. In other words, how we spend our time and how we spend our money. Jesus said where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. I know what somebody cares about and what they value by how they spend their time and by how they spend their money. I was traveling with a pastor. I live in, a, in Southern California 
and we were driving maybe five or six hours to kind of the mountains outside of the area uh, called Fresno in kind of central California. And there's this freeway, if you've ever been there, called the 99, where it just feels like you're in West Texas, where there's just desert in the middle of nowhere. I just realized that metaphor probably doesn't land when you're like, West Texas, I don't even know what that means. Do you have desert here in New Zealand, by the way? Are there any deserts here? Kind of? Okay, all right, just side, side note. That's one area of beauty maybe we possibly have over New Zealand, possibly. Well, I was, I was going up this freeway in the 99, and all of a sudden, I'm with this pastor, it's the two of us, and this loud screeching noise comes from his car. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, we should have left earlier. We should have gotten a rental car. I'm like, God, you're not going to let us be late. I'm going to preach on evangelism after all. Like, all the problems are going through my mind. We pull over. And without any hesitation, the pastor looks at me, goes, let's pray. I see problems as opportunities to trust God. And I instantly thought, wow, compared to this man, I'm like a spiritual raisin or something. (laughs) I was so convicted. I thought, wow, he really believes this. Friends, I think we know what really matters when the chips are down and things go south. It's as if kids have antennas watching. When things go south, what do my parents and grandparents really believe? Do they lean on their faith or not? Is God Lord of their life or not? That's where Moses starts. He says, make God Lord of your life. But then it continues. In verse five, it says, you shall love the Lord your God while your heart with all your soul, and with all your might. In other words, love God with what? Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. Love God with what? Everything. Love God with everything. Why does it matter that you and I love God? Are you ready? Because kids tend to value and follow the things that their parents love. More simply put, kids tend to follow the passions of their parents. Notice the first two things. Moses talking about passing on your faith, and the first two have to do with our kids or with us? With us. We often look at the next generation, we want to fix them. And Moses is like, make God Lord of your life first, and then second, cultivate a love for God. If we want our kids to love the Lord and we aren't working on a relationship loving the Lord, then are they going to listen to what we want or listen to what we do? When my son was seven, I was driving him to school and I said, I said, hey, buddy, what do you love? He goes, well, in football, I love the San Diego Chargers at the time. I said, okay, what else do you love? He goes, well, in basketball, I love the Los Angeles Clippers. I said, okay, what else do you love? He said, in baseball, I love the Red Sox and I hate the Yankees. He was seven. Now, it's funny he gave a sport answer because in our family, we hate sports. You don't believe that, do you? Nor should you believe that. My wife's dad was the American football coach, so we've grown up kind of rooting on the San Diego Chargers. Like, I guess you do the Warriors. You got excited about that one. Nothing wrong with that. I thought you meant the Golden State Warriors, though, but, you know, I digress. Why did my son say he loved basketball? Both my wife and I played college basketball. And I know what you're thinking, by the way. 
You don't look like a basketball player. That proves only one thing. There must be a God. Why do my son say he loves the Red Sox? Because my mom grew up in Boston, where the Red Sox are from. And she loves the Red Sox. Like, even when they're not playing, she's looking at her score, hoping the Yankees lose. Like, that's how deep it runs for her. Well, I didn't have to sit my son down and say, hey, son, we love the Red Sox. We love the Clippers. We love Chargers. I didn't have to tell him that. What did he see? He saw his parents get excited about it. He saw us value it. He saw us care about it and naturally imbibed those same passions. Keep in mind, my son also plays basketball. He's actually starting in two weeks at Biola where I teach, playing for the same coach I played for, which is kind of neat. But basketball is his sport. And when he was, I I would guess, maybe 10 or 11 years old, I said, hey, buddy, if you could go to any sporting event with anybody, what would you do? He goes, well, I think I'd go to a Red Sox game with Grammy. I said, why? He said, because she just loves the Red Sox so much. He graduated high school a year and a half, and my mom took him from California all the way to Boston to watch the Red Sox, get this, beat the Yankees. (laughs) You see what Moses is saying? He's saying, cultivate a heart for the Lord if you want your kids to have a heart for the Lord. Then he goes on, it says, Next, in in verse uh, six, it says, and these words I command you shall be on your heart. Now, it's interesting. He says, here's words and commandments, but they're to be on your heart. I get a chance in my ministry, whether it's sometimes on college campuses, sometimes on my YouTube channel, to interact with a lot of people who are agnostics, atheists, people of other faiths, ex-evangelicals, those who've left the evangelical church. I enjoyed these kinds of conversations. And I'm telling you, if you look at both my experience and the data, if you want a formula to turn someone away from the church, be a hypocrite and be legalistic. That's the formula, is be hypocritical in the way we live and turn into a bunch of rules and a bunch of laws. You see what Moses is saying? He goes, here's commandments, but they're to be where? In your heart lived out in relationship. One of the most profound things my father said this memorable is rules without relationships leads to rebellion. Rules without relationships leads to rebellion. Moses is giving rules and commandments, he says, but they're to be in our hearts and the way by which we love people, by which we love people. You know, one of the most famous artists of all time, Vincent van Gogh, grew up wanting to be a preacher, be a pastor. He became a missionary, and then his license was denied by his denomination to be renewed for two reasons. They said, number one, you're not a good enough preacher, and number two, your appearance is unbecoming of a minister of the gospel. Clearly, they hadn't read the story of John the Baptist. Falls into a depression. We know this because some of the letters that he sent. And then letters start cropping up about him wanting to be an artist. And I believe he sold one or two paintings in his entire life. But what a lot of people don't know is he 
likely continued to believe in God, but would use his art to critique the church. So Google it. There's actually a painting called The Church by Van Gogh that's a church building with no doors. Isn't that interesting? Well, my favorite painting, I have a ripoff of this. I live near the border in Mexico, so I bought a ripoff made in Tijuana of his painting of a starry night, and I put it in my office. Now, you can picture a starry night, right? On this side on your left is this kind of dark tree that frames it. The sky, it's like that moment where night turns into day, so there's stars, but also the moon and the sun. And then there's the valley. Can anybody tell me what's in the middle of the valley? A church. And what do you notice about the church? The lights are off. God is alive in nature, but the church is dead. This is, in a sense, what Moses is talking about. He's saying, here's commandments. But it's not about the commandments. It's not about the law. These are to be in our hearts and lived out in relationship with people. But then Moses gives us some specifics. He says in verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, talk about God when? All the time. In fact, the way I put it is, make God a part of the rhythm of life in your home. Make God a part of the rhythm of life in your home. See, part of what secularism does, which I think as far as I can tell is influential both here and in my country, is the idea that it's okay to have faith but your faith is to be kept private in your personal life. It's fine to go to church. It's fine to worship in your home, but your faith really shouldn't affect the way you think about politics and the way you vote, the way you think about sports, entertainment, and culture. Kindly leave your faith at the door when you enter into the public arena. That's what secularism essentially does. It privatizes faith. It's like Moses saw this coming 3,000 years ago and says, uh, no. Our faith is to affect everything that we do and everything that we believe. So the way we vote should be informed by our theology. The way we think about entertainment should be informed by our theology. The kind of worker I am should be informed by my theology. But I think without realizing it, we compartmentalize our faith in the church. So I mentioned I teach at a school called Biola, and I graduated there in 1998. Now, one of the things we would do is we would have like a commissioning service at the end of the year. So as a chapel, imagine you're in a gym, and there's probably 2,000-plus students packing in a gym. And they would have announcements, worship, a message, but they would have students stand who are going on mission trips around the world. They'd pray for him and then sit down. I remember sitting there thinking, why are we only having students stand who are going on mission trips? Why don't we have students stand who are going to work in construction for the summer? Or going to work in public schools? Or going to work with IBM? Isn't that a mission field? Now, we've come a long ways. The theme at our school is think biblically about everything. I actually co-host a podcast at Biola, and we call it Think Biblically. And the idea is everything from art and music and science and history, think biblically about it. But in a sense, this is what Moses is saying. Make God a natural part of the rhythm of life. 
Because what's interesting, if you only talk about scripture on say Wednesday night, if you have a Bible study and maybe Sunday after church, whether you intend it or not, you're giving kids the impression that faith belongs Sunday morning at church and Wednesday night, but doesn't affect everything else that we do. Moses saying, no, our faith affects everything. There's the great Dutch philosopher and politician, Abraham Kuyper, who said, there is not a square inch of creation out of which God does not cry out, it's mine. It's mine. So what does this look like specifically? Well, in this passage, it says, talk about them in the home. In other words, over the family meal. One of the things that forced a lot of people in COVID, I would guess this might be the case here, is to like slow down, not travel as much, and actually be home for family meals. That was a positive that came out of it in a lot of families. It's like, okay, let's actually sit and talk and spend time together. My life is busy. I have three kids and I travel and I speak. But as best we can, we try to carve out time to just be over family meals. Now, it's not like we sit down and have formal Bible studies. A lot of our talks about how are grades going? How is sports going? Have you seen the latest Marvel movie with my kids? Or how are the Spurs doing? My man, how are you a Spurs fan out here? Yeah. Best team in the league. Good answer. We got a new recruit who's seven foot five, so it's looking up for this Spurs. A lot of our conversations over dinner are just life with our kids. But what I try to do is naturally weave in spiritual things as I can. Hey, kid, here's an answered prayer like I saw you share on the screen earlier. Hey, kids, I was, I was share, reading this in my devotionals. What do you think about this? Hey, I saw this in the media. How do we think about this Christianly and just naturally weave in the rhythm of life. See, I think one of the keys to passing on faith is not adding some new program, but just more thoughtfully utilizing the life and relationships that we already live. So my son is, uh, my oldest son is 19 years old. And when that movie on the rock band Queen came out called, oh, now you participate. Uh, I see how it is. Called Bohemian Rhapsody, you're right. It was PG-13, so I had, I had some mild concern about the message, but he's 14. I read enough about it. I was like, okay, buddy, I'll take you. But here's the deal. I'll take you and a friend. I'll pay for all of it, which is a lot of money these days, including popcorn and drinks. All I ask is when we're done is that we just talk about it. I want to know what you think. He goes, sure, Dad. So we go to the movie, we come back, and we sit down at the dinner table probably half an hour, I just asked him questions. I said, hey, buddy, what'd you think? Did you have a favorite scene? Did you enjoy it? Is it what you expected? I said, is there anything in the movie as Christians we can agree with? I said, were there any themes in the movie that should give us pause? Were there any moments you felt the movie was preaching at you? Did you feel like the movie was using emotionalism to try to persuade you of something that maybe you know is wrong and we just talked about it? That's what I think Moses is talking about. He says, talk about these things when you're in the home. Second, Moses says, when you walk along the road, in other words, when you travel. Now, we don't typically travel by walking alone, but in that day, it was walk or like horseback or maybe on a camel. In other words, when you travel. 
So years ago, I tried to come up with this idea to engage my kids when we travel, so I just came up with something super creative title. I call it The Question Game. <laughs> you can tell I'm sarcastic. I actually think sarcasm is a spiritual gift, just for the record. <laughs> and the idea was, we would ask our three kids questions about like history, math, science, and the Bible. And I partly want them to realize when it comes to science, there's objective truth. When it comes to history, there's objective truth. When it comes to the Bible and theology, there is objective truth that we can know. I know two plus two equals four. And I know that I have eternal life because that's what 1 John 5.13 says. And we just ask them questions and try to create conversation. Now, it doesn't always work out awesome. Sometimes my kids are like, that question is too easy. She's winning. My kids are super competitive. They get it from their mom. You don't believe that, do you? Actually, she is competitive. We both are. But the idea is to just create conversation with our kids about spiritual things. And sometimes it works. When I started, my kids were three. When my daughter was three. She's 16 now. And uh, I remember I was driving along. And every spiritual question I asked her, the answer had to be Jesus. Exactly, right? Because she's three. And so I'm driving to the car. She's in the car seat behind me, and I can see in the rear view mirror. And uh, actually, I need to do it this way because you drive on this side. You can see it in the rear view mirror. She's behind me. And I decided to mix it up. I said, Shauna, where do we go when we die? No hesitation. My three-year-old looks me in the eye, and she says, jail. <laughs> We're still working on her theology. Then Moses says, when you lie down, something about the end of the day, the people's hearts are often open and receptive. One of the things I say to my kids, you know, every time I can remember is I'll, I'll tuck them in and just say, you know, you can ask your dad anything. I'm not going to shame them. I'm not going to freak out. And if you give your kids a false answer and they Google and find something else, you will lose credibility in their eyes. Got to be careful. But the reality is, with questions, kids don't go to their teachers. They don't go to their pastors. They're not primarily going to their friends. They're going to Google and YouTube and TikTok. So all my kids to know you can ask us anything, and we'll tell you what we think, and we'll be honest and have a conversation. So I was talking to my son. He's seven. I, go, I said, hey, buddy, you know you can ask me anything. He goes, he goes, okay, Dad, who is Jesus praying to in the garden? I said, what do you mean? He said, Jesus is God, right? I said, yes. He said, the Father's God, right? I said, yes. He said, was Jesus praying to himself? I said, go ask your mom. <laughs> I was at school and this mom came up to me of a second grader who's probably seven or eight. And she goes, oh, Dr. McDowell, I've been looking for you. My daughter asked me a question. I don't know the answer. I said, well, what was the question? She said, my eight-year-old asked me, did God love Osama bin Laden? What do I say? I said, oh, that's easy. She said, really? I said, yeah, here's what you say. And she leaned in. I said, you say, what do you think? I'm dead serious. A question is almost always better than an answer. We have 339 recorded questions of Jesus. 262 recorded questions of the Apostle Paul. And there's over 3,000 questions in the Bible. I want to have a conversation with a young person rather than stop it with a quick answer. 
You know, studies show that kids do not leave the faith because of doubt. They leave the faith because of unexpressed doubt. Do you create a climate with your kids in which questions are okay and they're welcome? Because if there's any religion that can invite questions, it's Christianity. Because Christianity is actually true and Jesus calls us to love God with our heart, our soul, and our strength and our minds. I mean, here are the ministry, an amazing ministry called Thinking Matters. That's all about saying there's answers if we're willing to seek after it. And thinking is a part of the Christian faith. But giving space for kids to doubt and love them anyways is vital, especially in today's world where there's so much fake news and endless opinions kids are exposed to. The last one says, when you get up, there's something about the morning, isn't there? I used to go to this coffee shop in the morning for years early, and I saw this grandfather with his grandson, who's probably 16, week after week with their Bible open. And it hit me that this grandfather before school was taking his grandson out and discipling him. Spending five bucks on a coffee and donut. Actually, it was Starbucks. $15 on coffee and donut. And I was so impressed by this, I sent out a tweet, something like, watching this grandfather week after week pour into his grandson before school. You know, a comment was that stood out to me was, I wish I had a grandfather like that. I think the biggest challenge with this younger generation is distraction because of endless ways to be engaged on social media and smartphones nonstop. Smartphones are not bad. I thank God for my smartphone. It's awesome. But there's distraction with this generation. Yet beneath that, if you just watch social media, you know what a lot of it is? Do you see me? Will you like this? Do I matter to you? The heart of this generation is to be called the beloved by a parent or an adult or a grandparent who says, you matter to me and I'm gonna lean into your life. I think we need boundaries with technology, but the most effective way is just to lean in relationally and care for this generation. There might be some of you who this morning, this talk was somewhat painful. You think, I've tried this stuff and my kids are not following the Lord or I wish I had heard this years ago. And I would say the Christian answer is very simple. Give yourself some grace. Nobody is a perfect parent. Nobody is. But God has grace for us. But second, maybe this morning, if that's you, this could just be the motivation to say, you know what, that relationship is not over. I'm gonna resurrect it and just take baby steps forward to restore a relationship that's broken. There is no formula for passing on our faith because people have this stubborn thing called free will. I think what scripture teaches and the research shows, the most effective thing we can do is really three things. Number one, live an authentic Christian life. If we don't model the Christian life, it doesn't matter what we say. Second, build relationships with your kids and your grandkids. Spend time with them, build relationships with them, care for them. And third, 
have meaningful spiritual conversations wedded through the rhythm of life. If we do that, there's no guarantee. But I do believe God would say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. Amen. I've been invited to come back tonight. I'm looking forward to that, but we're going to give a different talk. We're actually going to talk about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. The cornerstone of our faith is that Jesus lived and died and was buried and rose again on the third day. I've written academic books on this and I teach a three-day graduate class. We're gonna sum it up in one talk, but if you're a skeptic, you're not a believer, I'd invite you to come and just entertain the fact that maybe the history shows Jesus has risen. If you're not a skeptic and you're a believer, I'd love to have you come and just give you some basic points that you can share, like 1 Peter 3.15 says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be ready with an answer for the hope within. Give it with gentleness and with respect. I think tonight you could walk away with some very simple tools to explain to someone who asks why you believe the evidence shows that Jesus has risen from the grave. I hope you'll think about coming back. Father, thanks for this church. I sense such an authenticity here, a love for you, a sincerity and a humility. And I pray wherever people are at with some of the prayer requests that were on the screen or those who are maybe motivated or convicted by this talk that you give us your grace and you give us your wisdom just to be your agents of grace and love to the next generation. And we praise in your name, amen.